Welcome to Season 3 of the Precision Medicine Podcast, sponsored by Trapello. This is the podcast where experts come to discuss the problems oncologists, reference labs, and payers face as precision medicine grows and consider solutions for advancing the quality of patient-centered cancer care. Be sure to subscribe at precisionmedicinepodcast.com to get the latest episodes delivered straight to your inbox. Welcome to the Precision Medicine Podcast. I'm Jerome Madison, and today we have author, award-winning journalist, and producer for the PBS NewsHour, Allie Rogan. Allie, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Jerome. With October being Breast Cancer Awareness Month, we wanted to take an opportunity to celebrate the progress of precision medicine. Here in the U.S., we've seen a steady decrease in breast cancer mortality over the last 20 years. And of course, we have you know, many factors to, to contribute to that, including early diagnosis, better imaging technology and techniques, and more effective treatments. And the growth of precision medicine, we have the ability to identify women and men who are at a higher risk of developing breast cancer and then take preventative action to greatly reduce the chance of a cancer diagnosis. And that's just what our guest, Allie Rogan, did at the age of 18. And she shared her experience along with the stories of 30 other women who were impacted by breast cancer in her book, Beat Breast Cancer Like a Boss. So Allie, take us back to your college days, you're 18 years old. Um, tell us what prompted you to get genetic testing and determine your risk of developing breast cancer. Yeah, so when I was um, about 18, I was a junior, I think, at the time in college, my uh, dad, who actually got tested for the BRCA mutation at the very beginning of when that test was available, uh, which was, I think, in the 90s. So he'd been sitting on that information for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. And parenthetically, he got tested because uh, breast and ovarian cancer runs in his family. His sister had had ovarian cancer, um, and there were previous generations that had also dealt with breast and ovarian. And um, his sister's daughters, she had four daughters, and they also all tested positive for the BRCA mutation. So... There was a clear family history, which is one important criteria in determining whether you're a candidate for these tests. The other being um, Ashkenazi Jewish heritage, Eastern European Jewish. So uh, that was another check in the box of being good candidates for the BRCA test. So again, my dad had sat on that information for many years before he and my mom sat me down and said, that he had tested positive for this mutation and that uh, they were leaving it up to me to decide what I wanted to do with that piece of information. And me being a very proactive kind of person, uh, when I see a, uh, a problem, um, I usually pretty quickly at least try to set out to find a solution to it. And so I knew right then and there that I was going to want to get tested. Uh, so I did. Um, I was at NYU. This was in 2008. And they had, fortunately for me, a very robust genetic counseling um, center set up for this kind of thing, which yeah. again, you know, this was 
more than 10 years ago now. And the knowledge, the resources, the access to these things is much more widely available. But I was very, very lucky that at the time, I could find without a lot of difficulty those resources. So that's how I walked into that room, met with a genetic counselor. We went over my uh, family history and she mapped it all out. She put little uh, black triangles to represent the people who had uh, died of, of cancer, which was very morbid. And at the end of our consultation, she said, yeah, uh, sent me down the hall with a prescription for the BRCA test. I got it done there. And then a couple of weeks later, I was back in her office getting the results. Wow. Wow. Uh, Now, I think there's something not to be missed there, Karen, Mm -hmm. that the genetic risk can be passed from a mother or a father. Mm. And um, here's some other data points from the American Cancer Society that reports at cancer.org that five to 10 percent of breast cancers are thought to be hereditary. And the mutations of BRCA1 and 2 are the most common hereditary risk factor for breast and ovarian cancer in men. They also increase the risk of breast and prostate cancer in men. But it's worth noting that BRCA1 and 2 mutations are not the only ones that lead to inherited risk of cancer. There are other gene mutations that are less common and don't increase the risk of breast cancer as much as BRCA genes do. But if indeed you have a family history of breast or ovarian cancer, Um, such as several close relatives, at least one diagnosed at a young age, um, it's something to consider and can be discussed with a genetic counselor, just as Allie did. So, Allie, you are what's known as a previvor, who is someone who survived a predisposition to cancer and who has not had the disease. But even though you didn't have a cancer diagnosis, you were still deeply affected by the discovery of your, your BRCA mutation status because it, it comes with its own concerns and information that you have to make a decision about going forward. You know, talk to us about the impact that the test results had on you and how you made proactive decisions moving forward. Yeah, so once I had the results in hand that I was positive for BRCA1, I um, was really, really scared. And I felt very alone because there weren't that many resources available at the time. This was still a few years before Angelina Jolie came out with her story, which brought a lot more attention and, uh, awareness and understanding of this genetic mutation and some of the surgical options that are associated with it. So at the time when I spoke with a genetic counselor, she only really recommended, uh, increased surveillance and early detection as an option, which in my case would have meant uh, beginning mammograms much earlier than the average woman uh, and uh, alternating them with MRIs every six months. And that's a great option. I mean, anything that helps you uh, catch cancer early is terrific. And of course, I'm a huge advocate for uh, that kind of uh, screening. But in my case, it sounded really burdensome for me to have to consider doing this every six months alternately for uh, the foreseeable future and then having the kind of end point be a cancer diagnosis, thinking it's just basically me sitting on a time bomb waiting until the other shoe drops. Mm -hmm. And 
those were the recommendations that were, that was the only option that was really given to me to deal with my risk of breast cancer at the time. And so I left that meeting feeling really, really alarmed. And it wasn't until I ended up getting um, an opinion from a surgical oncologist that I realized that prophylactic surgery was a totally viable option. And this surgeon said, yeah, more and more younger and younger women are getting it done. Um, it's not that crazy. <laughs> and so as soon as I left that doctor's office, I said, well, of course I'm going to do that. Um, not because it's you know, the right choice for everybody. But for me, it was um, a big, uh, figuratively and literally, a big weight off my chest to uh, know that I had options to uh, basically get cancer before cancer got me. And again, you know, it's important for me to point out that I was very lucky that my parents could, uh, we, you know, we had good health insurance. Um, this was around the same time that Obamacare was actually passing. So when I um, began this journey, uh, I could still be discriminated against for BRCA being a pre-existing condition. And then I think actually by the, by the time I got surgery, um, Obamacare was the law of the land. And so to that end, I was able to, I was on my parents' insurance at the time. Um, and uh, that was wonderful for me because, um, you know, they had the resources to pay for this um, and to pursue the best uh, physicians. And so, um, you know, I recognize that my ability to speak about this experience as positively as I do is is predicated so much on the fact that I have health care privileges that are not afforded to the average patient in this situation. And so that's a completely different conversation that we could spend a whole other podcast talking about. <laughs> but I do think it's important that even though I realized in that moment that that was the decision I wanted to make, um, the prophylactic surgeries that we're talking about are extensive. They require inpatient stay. Uh, and there are lots and lots and lots of money, even with insurance. So um, it was an easy decision for me to make, uh, as it is an easy decision for a lot of people to make. What's not so easy is actually um, have you know having the resources to be able to go through with it. And again, that's that's a whole other side of this. Mm -hmm. That um, I was lucky to see that the the easy part of it, um, but it's important for me to uh, recognize that it's not usually that way, actually. Yeah. You mentioned something really powerful. You said, you know, your, your experience with this took place before Angelina Jolie went public about her experience. And um, for women who have BRCA1 and 2 gene mutations, they have a 70% chance of developing breast cancer by the age of 80. Um, and women with these mutations are more likely to be diagnosed with breast cancer at a younger age and have cancer in both breasts. You did this at a young age. When a celebrity like Angelina Jolie comes out and talks about it, it, it has a powerful way of destigmatizing it for a, a more public conversation. But, you know, what were the conversations that you were having with your peers or your network of people that you knew um, that maybe helped to destigmatize it as well? Yeah, you know, I... Uh kind of sought out to challenge the stigmas whenever I was personally confronted with them, which happened a lot. 
in the early days of this. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. A lot of the doctors and the nurses and the other medical professionals that I was confronted with, especially those who weren't necessarily intimately involved with the day-to-day of my treatment or my care, but those who, like I distinctly remember the nurse that was preparing me for my mastectomy surgery, say, asking me, literally as she's prepping me to receive uh, anesthesia, aren't you too young to be getting this done? Oh, man. And I'm like, uh, well, that's kind of a difficult question that you want me to address as I'm literally preparing to go under. Like, thank you so much for, you know, wow. oh, 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 gosh, I hadn't considered that before. And uh, so I got a lot of that, you know, why um, don't you want to wait until you breastfeed or, you know, I've heard that assumption from a lot of uh, predominantly male doctors who say, oh, well, the reason why more younger women don't get this done is because they don't want to lose their natural breasts because they're not in a serious relationship or they're not married or they haven't had children yet. And I just say that's BS because for me, um, and for a lot of people who go through this, I've, you know, talked to lots and lots of people in this community, um, your health comes before all of that. And if you are lucky enough to have, uh, a look inside a crystal ball of your health history, why wouldn't you take advantage of reducing your risk of cancer immediately? Um, Why wouldn't you uh, promote the healthiest version of yourself, not just for yourself, but for that future partner in life or for that future child? So those were a lot of the stigmas that I was confronted with. And I do think that in the past decade or so, there's been um, so much more understanding of this, more and more young women are speaking out about their experiences. So a lot of those um, preconceptions are being dispensed with. But still, again, my experience is not, um, no. you know, this isn't a monolith. Everybody has different perspectives. Um, for some women, they may choose to, I, I, I do know women um, who have choos- chosen to have the prophylactic surgeries once they're done childbearing, because that was something that was really, really important to them. And, and that's wonderful that they were able to, you know, um, put this off until they were ready. Um, for me, uh, I didn't want to wait. I The toll on my mental health of waking up every day, worrying if today was the day I was going to, you know, find a lump. Uh, I was just not something I wanted to deal with. And, um, you know, uh, I also just didn't feel like I really cared that much about whether, Mm. uh, in my dating Mm. life, uh, it really mattered. Uh, and I joke about this in the book that, you know, um, I had pretty small boobs to begin with. So the idea of doing an upgrade, um, as I do consider my implants, um, was very attractive to me. And again, that's not everybody's experience. A lot of people, I mean, look, it's, it's a really emotional thing, losing your natu- natural breasts. So there are a lot of people who have um, mixed emotions, even if they have gone through with preventative surgery. For me, it wasn't that. It was um, a- an incredibly liberating experience all the way through. Yeah. How old were you, even- Allie, exactly, when you had the surgery? I had the surgeries when I was 20. I was a senior in college and I had actually gone to study abroad the first semester of my senior year. 
and I was able to kind of like forget about everything and uh, live in ignorant bliss for a little amount of time. And then when I came back, I knew that I was going to have to deal with this. And I did. And I had all the surgeries um, right before I graduated. And that was a very conscious decision on my part because I knew that if I had put it off any longer, I'd have to worry about, you know, taking time off of work and, um, uh, you know, putting a pretty big pause um, in what I hoped to be a career in journalism that I could really hit the ground running with. And again, you know, I was very lucky to get a good job right out of school, which is not a given. But I knew that um, I actually got the surgery done over spring break of my senior year when there was a built-in rest period. And I knew that that sort of break would not exist in Mm. the working world. Smart. Mm -hmm. The Precision Medicine Podcast will continue right after this. With the explosion of new data and biomarkers in cancer today, how can healthcare professionals keep pace to know which genes will best inform treatment decisions? Trapello knows. Trapello is the first single technology platform used by oncologists, labs, and payers to resolve the complexities of precision medicine in real time. Trapello knows which patients to test and when. It knows which tests are most appropriate, which labs are preferred, and which treatments are most likely to be reimbursed. Visit TrapelloHealth.com to learn how you can give cancer patients the most appropriate, evidence-based treatment options when time matters most. For as much progress researchers and physicians have made to prevent cancer and to improve outcomes in breast cancer, uh, the American Cancer Society still estimates that in 2021, 281,000 women will be diagnosed with invasive breast cancer. Um, another 2,600 men will be diagnosed with invasive breast cancer. 49,000 plus women will see new cases of non-invasive breast cancer. And around 43,600 people will die from a breast cancer diagnosis. You know, Ali, I watched the conversation you had with noted breast cancer researcher, Dr. Samuel Waxen up there in, in New York. And you guys were discussing your book, Breast Cancer Like a Boss. And he mentioned that there's more to the notion of survivorship than completing therapy. Um, Talk to us about what inspired you to write your book. And can you share the insights you learned around survivorship from these conversations? Yeah. When I initially started writing this book, I had a very linear conception of what it meant to survive breast cancer and to beat breast cancer. I mean, what does that really mean? Uh, And it's a lot more complicated as I found out. Um, And a lot of that has to do with the fact that um, uh, to complete your treatment and to hit those milestones that are associated with, you know, um, going into remission and remaining cancer-free, those are all important, but they are not the whole story. Even if you're done with your treatment and you have hit some of those important milestones, um, what I found is that the specter of breast cancer never fully goes away for the majority of people who go through it, men and women, um, because you're always, first of all, uh, the first challenge that a lot of people 
um, hit when they exit the treatment phase and they're in this, you know, phase that people think of as survivorship is the worry that now that you have actively stopped your treatment, you are not going in every day for chemo infusions or radiation or, you know, your surgeries are all behind you. There's a very palpable fear that because you're not actively fighting the cancer inside of you anymore, that you are allowing it to um, regain its strength and that you're just letting it kind of fester in you. Um, and of course, sadly, many cases of breast cancer do end with recurrences. That's not always the case. Um, there is obviously, as Jerome mentioned, incredible advancements that are um, happening all the time that are reducing recurrences. Um, but some cancers, um, and this is such an this is where precision medicine can play such an incredible role is determining um, more with more and more specificity uh, whether it's likely that your cancer might end with uh, a recurrence. So that's a big fear, the fear of recurrence and the absence of the treatment. Um, and uh, then there's the uh, scanxiety that comes with, you know, once you're done, you're living your life, um, you've, uh, you know, um, gone through the physically painful taxing periods of your treatment or whatever, um, but you're still going in for your mammograms, you're still going in for blood tests, and um, there's great worry that is uh, usually associated with those kinds of tests for people. So the mental um, challenges that come with a cancer diagnosis um, don't disappear as soon as you're done with those physical treatments. And that is something I didn't have a real good appreciation for before I started talking to people for this book. And so now I understand that, you know, when you call somebody a survivor um, and when you say that somebody has beat cancer, um, they may have a different relationship with those terms than mm -hmm. the one that, you know, outsiders. And I mean, in this case, I could consider myself an outsider given that I, you know, I was able to take preventive action. Uh, and so I don't speak from a place of, you know, having had cancer. Um, and so a lot of people, you know, don't really consider themselves survivors or, um, you know, warriors. They don't, a lot of people don't like those kinds of terms, um, because they just see themselves as, you know, living every day, uh, thriving every day. Certainly people who have metastatic breast cancer, which will be with them for the rest of their lives um, uh, until there is a cure for metastatic breast cancer. Um, that's something that uh, they largely feel excluded from the survivorship conversation because of that. And so that's something that I definitely am more mindful of now, um, trying to be very sensitive when speaking to different people, uh, different audiences about their breast cancer experience, whether they want to call it their fight, uh, the, you know, their, their journey, or just, you know, using more neut neutral terms uh, can really help support somebody, uh, no matter what phase of a breast cancer uh, experience they're in. Yeah. I really honor your transparency with sharing uh, the stigma that you experienced from, from different people 
in your world when you are experiencing your bracket status and the testing and and going forward with the prophylactic mastectomy. But from your interviews with these women, can you describe the feelings around the stigma of breast cancer that they experienced and how it either affected their ability to share their story or empowered them to share their story? Yeah, um, so many women, including young women who just recently got breast cancer, um, women who had it decades ago. Um, Luckily, the stigma has been reduced quite significantly with the unfortunate ubiquity these days of breast cancer, but also with, you know, efforts from people as far back as um, Betty Ford to be more transparent. And all of those women who have uh, played a role in that have, have done incredible things in terms of normalizing it, talking about it. But, um, you know, there was a time in recent memory uh, that a lot of the women that I talked to in this book uh, talked about that you just didn't talk about these things. It was just kind of something that you kept to yourself. You wouldn't even share it with your close friends. Um, And of course, that led to a lot of people not having those incredible communities of people who have gone through similar experiences. Um, And uh, even more, you know, for younger women who maybe the the horrific stigmas that come with um, breast cancer have somewhat um, improved in recent years, but young women still talk to me about, uh, having friends who are uncomfortable talking about their cancer with them. And I think a lot of it is just people being, you know, uh, coming from a, a a well-meaning place of not wanting to offend somebody, not wanting to upset somebody, uh, when it comes to talking about their experience with cancer. Um, but to me, what I have heard from countless people going through this is that, you know, what they want is for their loved ones to listen, uh, to be supportive, to take cues from the cancer patient, not to shy away from it, to talk about it and to be open. Um, and, uh, that is something that just overwhelmingly everybody talked about, like, you know, You don't need to, don't come to me with your baggage about cancer. I already have enough of my own, but what you can do is listen and you can be there for me. Just sending a quick note of, you know, Hey, I'm thinking about you. Um, that can be helpful. And, um, all of those small things I think can go a long way in, uh, slowly eradicating, um, the stigmas around breast cancer that continue to exist to this day, um, in the same ways that, you know, having healthy conversations lead to, uh, a better understanding on a wide range of topics that we deal with as a society. Agreed. Mm. You know, I've heard you say that there's no <laughs> right way to do this when it comes to approaching therapy or making decisions, but, Knowing what you know now through your journey and learning of the journey of so many other women, what advice would you give another woman who may be walking your path and considering genetic testing or prophylactic mastectomy? 
the first thing I would advise is get the test. What, you know, you don't have to make the same choices that I did. Um, but for me, I have trouble understanding. And this is where I recognize that, you know, I'm a little bit um, uh, obtuse. Uh, I'm a little bit, um, you know, kind of purposely myopic because I think it's a bad idea to not get tested. Um, there are lots and lots of places that will help, help you pay for a BRCA test if you are a candidate. And of course, there are more and more, as Jerome, you mentioned, all different kinds of mutations we're learning about every day. So it's not just about BRCA anymore. If you have a family history of breast and ovarian cancer, it's very, very possible that you may have another genetic mutation if it's not BRCA. But get the test, and then you can decide, you can make informed decisions about your health future going forward. A couple other specific things that I learned in terms of my experience based on the choices I made were, uh, and this is a super specific and super personal thing, but I wish that I had taken pictures of my natural breasts. I just <laughs> hadn't. And I didn't realize that I didn't have any pictures of them. Like, I mean, I'm revealing here that I wasn't like, you know, I, <laughs> I didn't grow up with like sexting. So that just like, wasn't something I partook <laughs> in. Like no, no judgment, no shade. If that's how, you know, if that's your thing, like, like I fully support you, but it just wasn't something I had done. And I only realized that when I got, um, I had to take some pictures. I, you know, there's like a medical photographer that does take pictures of your breasts um, pre-surgery. And I realized that those were the only pictures I had of my beautiful natural breasts and I missed them when they were gone. Um, so that is something that I would consider, you know, make a moment of it, like get a, do a tasteful photo shoot if, if that's what you're into. Like, I mean, like, no, like no joke. I wish, I really wish I had done that, even though I, I mean, I love my boobs. Um, I love, you know, they make me feel so confident. Um, but I do wish I had done that. Another thing is, and this is an important part of it. And I do hope my next book covers this is, um, to reduce my risk of ovarian cancer, the recommendation is to remove your ovaries by age 35 mm. or when you have finished bearing children, whichever comes first. I have done neither of those things. And um, my husband and I started trying to conceive about a year and a half ago and we were having um, fertility issues. And so a few months ago I started doing IVF and um, that gives me the added benefit of being able to screen out the BRCA mutation in um, embryos. And so I'm documenting that journey uh, on my Instagram and I'm also being very transparent about that. Um, but I bring that up to say that uh, I may have, if I had known, um, just a little bit more about my reproductive future, uh, which is hard to say, obviously, but I may have considered freezing my eggs earlier in life. Um, you know, just because as women, um, it, it, professional women, you know, sometimes more and more women are putting off having children until later in life. And I just wonder like how many more eggs could I be retrieving after the end of every egg retrieval cycle, which I've done three so far. Um, if I had done this five years ago, even because, you know, just the unfairness of a woman's biology is such that as you get older and as you become more, you know, desiring of having a family, <laughs> it becomes harder and harder. Uh, and so that's something, again, it's not for everybody, but, um, you know, when I first got my test results, I wasn't thinking 
about having children at all. So it was just something I put out of my mind until just a couple years ago. And I think maybe if I had had a little more, if I had known then what I know now, maybe I would have frozen my eggs uh, a little bit earlier to at least be able to start this journey. Um, I mean, now I'm confronting a situation where I might have to go immediately from, you know, hopefully some successful uh, embryo transfers to um, like immediate menopause, like shutting everything down when I remove my ovaries. Uh, and that sucks. But um, so that's a whole, I mean, the ovarian thing is just an entire other can of worms that again, we could spend another podcast talking about just that. Uh, but, um, you know, that's something that I, I may have uh, done differently. For sure. Chock full of goodness. So <laughs> many nuggets. Thank you for your candor, because I think we're going to help quite a few people of our listeners and, and those who, who occasionally tune into the podcast, Allie Rogan, author, of Beat Breast Cancer Like a Boss and award-winning producer of PBS NewsHour. Thank you Allie, so much. Allie, um, you know, I'll just add to that, to this. I, I love that you said, you know, take more pictures, do more things. I'm a cancer survivor and I, I did do some of that and I haven't looked at them in a while, but mm. I lost my hair, uh, of mm. course. Um, but I had a newborn who was also bald. So I have pictures of my bald <laughs> head with my daughter, who's an infant wearing my wigs. So I'll have to Aww. take those out. Wow. <laughs> That's so cute. Yeah, they're pretty funny. And she's now 15. So I'll have to show her those. Um, but uh, we... Um, did a little bit of reading, of course. Um, we always like to ask a question about um, about our um, guests' uh, habits and and talents um, off stage, if you will. And <laughs> you, of course, are center stage a lot when it comes to delivering the news. But um, discovered that you have some musical talents, and ironically, there's a lot of guests on our podcast that have musical talents in <laughs> um, in this world of precision medicine. And I have heard that you had the opportunity to join Bruce Springsteen and the East Street Band on the keyboard several times. So we were just curious what that was like. <laughs> yeah. So um, my maiden name is Weinberg. And for anybody that's a fan of Bruce Springsteen and the East Street Band, that happens to be the last name of uh, his drummer, Max Weinberg, who's known as Mighty Max. And that is indeed my dad. And so I'm very lucky that, uh, you know, uh, another side of my life is having a lot of these incredible experiences traveling the world with the E Street Band and seeing my dad play. And of course, he was also on Late Night with Conan O'Brien for 15 years. So I really grew up in that world. And um, that's has a lot to do with why I'm in TV news now. Uh, as you can imagine, um, I uh, fully leaned on his connections, frankly, to get me started in this uh in this career. So, uh, I, uh, I make no bones about that, but, um, I was, and I think still hold the title for being the youngest member, the youngest child of a member of the E street band who awesome. sat in with the band. I was also the first and it was when I was 12 years old and I was at a, a rehearsal that they were doing gearing up for a tour and I had jumped onto Roy Bitten's piano and cause I, I play piano and I, I had been playing like Furalise or something. And then I switched <laughs> to Louie Louie, which is, you know, a one, four, five <laughs> chord progression. And Bruce heard that. And he was like, Oh, if you can play 
Pure Elise, like you can play, <laughs> you know, with my band. And he invited me Funny. to sit in with them. And so that's how I ended up doing that. And I've sat in with them a couple times. I sit in with my dad when he's touring with his own uh, personal projects. And so, you know, we're all hoping that Bruce goes back on the road. So maybe I'll be able to yeah. sit in again. That's awesome. That's great. Oh, oh my gosh. Okay, listen, <laughs> listen. <laughs> I, you, you you have me geeking out over here because like Jimmy, I, I'm a huge fan of Jimmy Iovine. Yeah. Okay? So Jimmy Iovine was the assistant sound engineer on Bruce Springsteen's uh, Born to Run, one of his breakout albums. And this probably this story probably relates right back to your dad because Jimmy Iovine almost quit because mm-hmm. Bruce Springsteen. He tells a story that Bruce had him working like for uh, an entire day. <laughs> on drums getting the <laughs> drum sound right and jimmy was like i just can't, i can't hear anymore i can't listen it's too loud it's too long and he almost quit and uh, someone got him to come back and said don't quit if you if you stay in the game you know bruce will be the biggest fan and advocate for you jimmy comes what? back and this guy goes on to found interscope records beats wow. headphones he's responsible for bringing nine inch nails marilyn manson and of course, Dr. Dre, who uh, Jimmy produced his first album with a little known rapper called Snoop Doggy Dog. So listen, <laughs> I totally geeked out when Karen told me that. That was cool. Yeah. That's so funny. Um, well, I, I will, like, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Allie. <laughs> no, one last thing. I will say this. The only album that my dad didn't play on was Born to Run. And so I just want to put on the record. That I think, <laughs> if I'm if I'm right, that those drums that he had to agonize over were my dad's predecessors, who was also a fantastic drummer. But I do not know, and I'd be curious to ask um, how the sound changed and how Jimmy's uh, you know duties changed. I know Bruce was always very meticulous with everybody, including my dad. But uh, that's such a great anecdote. I love it. Thank you for well, sharing obviously, that. <laughs> absolutely. Tell your dad it obviously came easier when he came around. So Jimmy stayed in the game and the rest is histories. That's right. That's, That's awesome. absolutely right. Well, I drove my parents crazy playing for Elise as a child. I can't wait to yeah. tell them that I could have had a whole other career had I been in the right place at the right time. <laughs> Well, so Allie, for our listeners uh, who may want to connect with you on social media, can you share the best ways for them to do that, the platforms that you use and your handle? Yeah, absolutely. I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Those are my two most um, active. And I'm at Allie Rogan on both. That's A-L-I-R-O-G-I-N. And uh, please uh, give me, uh, drop me a line. I'd be happy to hear from you. Thank you, Allie. That that is awesome. And I think, you know, Jerome, somebody's trying to tell us we need to start some sort of music podcast here. <laughs> got to be. You got to be. Hey. Well, Allie, thank you so much for bringing your insights and, and sharing your story and telling us about the stories of those in your book. Thank you for being a guest on the Precision Medicine Podcast. You're so welcome. Thank you for Thanks, having Allie. me. Thanks, Allie. You've been listening to the Precision Medicine Podcast, sponsored by Trapello. Trapello is the first clinical decision support tool to align the interests of oncologists, labs, and payers to give patients the best chance at beating cancer. To learn more, visit gettrapello.com. To subscribe to the podcast or download transcripts of any episode, visit precisionmedicinepodcast.com. We invite you to join the conversation on social media. 
You can find us on Twitter at PMP by Trapello and on LinkedIn at the Trapello company page. If you know someone who would enjoy the Precision Medicine podcast, please share it. They'll thank you, and so will we. We hope you'll tune in for the next episode.